Hello, I am Anika Orock, author of The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, and you are listening to the fabulous Baseball and Barbecue Podcast with Jeff and Lynn. Welcome to episode 110 of Baseball and Barbecue. I am here with my co-host, Jeff Fantasy Camp Cohen. Yes, and I'm here with my co-host, Leonard Haberman. <laughs> Jeff, so we start the show. Let's, let's get right to it. First of all, two great guests on this show. I don't want to forget who they are, okay? I don't want to forget to let our audience know we have Andy Husbands, Barbecue extraordinaire. Yes. And we have Larry Olmstead. Author fans. Okay, wrote a great book. Two amazing guests, but yes. special surprise, Jeff. What? We start the show with some Mets music. Yes. Because Meet the Mets. Yeah. And I call you Jeff Fantasy Camp Cohen. And why do I do that? I have no idea. You of course you know. <laughs> because you just got back from Fantasy Camp. Mets. I did. Fantasy Camp. I did. Yes. As we begin episode 110, and I, I think that we'll we'll touch on it in this episode. We'll see how much we'll talk about it. But I've got a lot of questions for you. Jeff, you went to Mets Fantasy Camp. I certainly did. Start us off. How how does this come about? You know, you finally You've, you've wanted to go for a very long time. It was a bucket list item. It, they always have it in February, which people who may or may not know, my wife is a CPA, so February is a hard time with kids growing up. Just, the timing just hasn't been right. This year, they moved it to November. Of course, my kids are out of the house and whatever, but, <laughs> but now it's November, and it, the timing was right. It's a bucket list item. I've always wanted to do this. Everything, the stars aligned. You know, I was able to go this year. So I was very, very happy. So many questions for you. But one, knowing that you were going and knowing that some of our former guests were going to be coaches at yes. the fantasy camp. Yes. Had to, had to be exciting. And, they, you know, Len, they, they asked for you too. Todd Pratt and Barry Lyons both asked for you. And, so, and as did Howard Johnson. That was nice. Yeah, it was very, very nice that they did that. But nobody flew me out there. I, I, I would have gladly, you know, come out and and uh, I certainly couldn't have hit the field. I, Jeff, 
first of all, you, you know, you're going to be playing baseball. I know that you play, uh, you know, you're a, uh, what, what do you call a, a, you're not a scratch, like a scratch golfer or what? No, I'm a, I'm a softball, you know, Sunday, you know, slugger, I guess, you know, right. Not very good. That's for sure. But oh, okay. Len, but there you, were people yeah. of all ages there. There's people in their seventies playing. Right. So, you know, you could certainly, you're a young man. You certainly could have fit in there. <laughs> well, you know, when I had my experience uh, hitting in the cage at Yankee Stadium and having a catch with Mariano Rivera, my my regret was that I didn't do any kind of I, I didn't pick up a baseball beforehand and at least get a little practice in. But, Jeff, you you definitely did. So how, how does that yes. tell, tell me about that a friend of mine? He knew of uh, a former Met, Kevin Baez, who played three years, several, you know, in the, I guess, 90s, early 90s. Kevin Baez has a baseball camp and he takes people out and we, we shared some balls. He did some drills. So I was able to practice with him for, for a couple of weeks. So that was very, very helpful. And Kevin Baez was at the fantasy camp. He was. He, that's so, Jeff, was. To, you get to the camp. How many former Met players were there? Would you say? Uh, I would say almost 30. Okay. And about, and how many attendees? About 100. Definitely, it was 11, te- 11 per people per team. There was 10 teams, so 110 people. Okay. And you played, you went through drills? We went through drills. The coaches had a draft. Obviously, being a rookie, they, uh, I was drafted, you know, toward the end because people go there every year. I mean, 15, 20 years, people have been going and they know who the, these guys are, who's better and whatever. But so I was, but I was very just happy to be on a team just to. Right. So they, so was it like in the schoolyard where they're like, I'll take so-and-so. No, and no, they actually like- went into a room <laughs> and, uh, they conducted a draft and then they let us know the results at lunch. Okay. <laughs> now. I would imagine it's it's a little different than like you know uh, Moneyball where, where they're in a room and just a little bit. <laughs> you didn't get a signing bonus or anything, did you? I got a lot of things signed, but I did not get a signing bonus. <laughs> All right, so you do the drills. You 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 met players that not only have we had on the podcast, but these are guys that you've seen play. You you grew up uh, as a kid watching these guys. I I mean. It's, it's, Tell, tell me about your first your, your interactions with these players. I mean, Duffy Dyer, for instance, right? Duffy Dyer was absolutely fantastic. I'm in the hotel room. He's I'm not in the hotel. I'm in the hotel lobby, and and he's he's there. And in comes Ron Svoboda into the hotel, and these guys on the 69 team together. They that 69 team was so close. He's, he's, you can just tell the way these guys you know met each other. You know, it was just so great, and they happened to be my coaches from, from the team I was on. So I was especially ecstatic. And you actually had uh you did a little interview with Duffy Dyer. I did. I did. I will play that with for you in a few minutes. Very good. Then you, as, as I saw pictures, well, you, you're standing in front of your locker. Yes. And it's, it's like you were a major league player. They treated you as a player. You go into the trainer's room. They put they do, do your laundry. There's the beer and the water and the the protein shakes or in the refrigerator. There's a cafeteria. They, everything. They treated you like a player. And what number did you wear, Jeff? 
Uh, I wore number 49 in, uh, in honor of our podcast guest, Ed Hearn. And I would, if I would encourage everybody to go back to listen to that, because that was a very inspirational episode. It was. And he knew that you were wearing yes. this number in his he honor. Did. He did. And that, yeah. And that's, that was pretty nice. Definitely. Yeah. So you had Duffy Dyer, uh, you, Ron Swoboda, Joel Youngblood. Joel Youngblood was amazing. If you look up his stats, his birth date, the man is 70 years old and he looks younger than us. And Todd Pratt, as you said, uh, Todd Mookie Pratt. Wilson, Mookie, uh, who locked it across, the, across from me, Mookie. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's just, I I knowing how much you love the Mets is just, is, uh, I can, I can only imagine what, let me, let, let me tell you a little story about Doc. Yeah. So uh, Wednesday night, Tuesday night, last Tuesday night was a casino night. It was for charity. They gave you fake money. You bid on things or whatever. You gambled. You get more chips. You get, you, you put it into a bin to pick up a bill, whatever. But I'm sitting there before I had dinner. So I'm sitting there with Dwight Gooden. And we talk about A6 Mets and his career. And he said, you know, we're talking about A6. And I said, I was at, and he, as he was eating, I said, you know, I, I was at game two of the 1986 World Series. And, and if you remember, he lost that game. He just dropped his food. I, now I lost my appetite. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, and that game against Roger Clemens, and he said that he had nothing that night. He was just flat. He didn't have anything that night. And he, he, was, he was very gracious about it, though. Of course, I didn't. Of course, I didn't tell him I was at the game in '88 when he gave the home run to, to Mike Sosha. I was at that game too. I didn't say that. <laughs> you were an intern with the Mets in '84, right? '84, yes, right. Yes. So, but had you met Doc Gooden before this? Well, in 1984, yes. In fact, when I, right. I had to actually stand up in front of everybody because uh, all the rookies had to introduce themselves. And I said, in 1984, I was an intern for the New York Mets in the public relations department. So basically, I worked with Dwight Gooden and, and, and uh, Mookie Wilson. Wow. Yeah. Worked with them. I'm in the office. They're playing ball. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, just as an aside, I, I know so many things come together. You know, Bobby Valentine, of course, was running for mayor of Stanford, Stanford, Connecticut, and he didn't win. But what I what I was told is uh, talking to our producer, our show producer, he was there the night that it was either going to be a concession speech or a celebration. Oh, yes. He was, yes. He told me that Jay Horowitz was at. Oh, really? Was at this was at the party. Oh, yeah. OK. Yeah. And uh, he, he said to Jay, he said, uh, I enjoyed your uh, appearance on baseball and barbecue ah. and Jay had very nice things to say. So very nice. Very nice. It, that, that was nice. But back to you and your, your trip. Okay. So you get there, you meet the players, you have some specific players that you really like, but, and, and you like them all. I know that, you know, but you have some specific players that you really wanted to meet. So, who would you say was probably the, the one player or one or two that that you were most excited to meet? Well, Duffy Dyer. I really like Duffy Dyer. And, and meeting Ryan Swoboda in person, uh, even though we, we spoke to him, uh, uh, that was a great thrill. They were to, to Howard Johnson, which who we met uh, together. I mean, these weren't most of these guys were not what we call star players. They weren't, weren't Mike Piazza type players, right? right? They were, you know, mm -hmm. but Todd Pratt, I got to tell you, Eric Hillman, who pitched for the Mets 
he was uh he is the funniest guy he was very very funny 80 he's uh six foot seven and, and yeah pitcher and he's he was very funny he's great and pete Cherk was there i remember pete Cherk. He, he but i what i did not remember was when he was traded to the reds he was actually runner up in Cy Young uh, one year well, and he, he lost to uh, a guy named Greg Maddox. I don't know if you ever heard of Greg Maddox. <laughs> Hall of Fame of 350 wins. But Pete Sherry, I didn't realize that he actually was runner up to, to uh, a Cy Young. That's pretty damn good. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. 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 And obviously, everybody that's there is there because they are Met fans. Mm-hmm. So all these coaches know that. Yep. You know, but they they must really there's there's something that has to be said about the feeling they must have to be back in the, I don't, I would say in the spotlight, but you know, it's a, it must be nice to have the accolades of the fans again. Yeah, they they enjoy coming tell their back. Stories. They yeah. enjoy coming back and, 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 and talking with the fans. They, they, they enjoy that, that very much. I mean, some of them really look forward to these two weeks. In fact, Nelson Figueroa, I mean, the guy is only 47 is only a couple of years removed from playing ball. And he, he loves, going down to Fenty's camp. Right. And Jeff, when you spoke to Ron Swoboda, did you mention the fact that we, when we interviewed him, <laughs> that we did not ask him about the catch? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we the only ones who didn't answer about the catch. <laughs> but it's wow, funny. He so was telling me that, you know, in, in when he played in the late sixties, early seventies, he, uh, they didn't get paid very much. They couldn't sustain themselves during the, the winter. Uh, so what he's, he lived in uh, Long Island during the year and he would go and do, uh, men's breakfast, bar mitzvahs, the, uh, the circuit, you know, the little league circuit, the banquet, those, that, that type of money helped them, you know, get through, get through the winter until they started playing ball again. What that's where, he, that's where he came to his love, his, his, uh, bagel, bagel with cream cheese. <laughs> what a difference. I mean, it's not. It's it's years, but it's not so many. And it, the difference in pay, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's now the minor, the 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 major league minimum is is enough that uh, somebody doesn't have to work uh, at all. Right. Six hundred right? grand. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing. Okay, of course, I lost my train of thought. There was something else that I wanted to ask you. I tell you, uh, Josh Tolley is he, uh, he, he just retired. Great guy. Yeah, great guy. I said, "How does it feel being traded for someone who just won the World Series?" He goes, "Wait a sec, Darno wasn't traded for me. I, I, I wasn't traded for Darno. Darno was traded for me." <laughs> now you had so Ron Swoboda, the yes. catch, but you also had somebody else there that made an incredible catch. Yes, Andy Chavez was there. Yeah, this guy is. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you who's nicer. One one guy's nicer than the other. So yeah. kind, so very very nice to speak to. He it's just. Just very nice. I, you know, there's nothing else I can say. You talk about, you know, you ask him what he's doing. He tells you, he tells you, he went to coaching. You know, he was on that Texas team that lost to the World Series to the Cardinals that by they were one strike away and they lost that as well. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about that. And of course, the catch. Yeah. So the first night that you're there, and I, I, I this is going to be, I think, a, to be continued because I, you know, I, I never met anyone who went to fantasy camp. <laughs> The first night you're there, uh, what did you do? Uh, you, you took the coaches out to dinner, right? Yes. Each team was encouraged to take their coaches out to dinner. So yes. you took out who? 
Uh, well, the team took out, now there's 11 guys on the team, and we took out Ryan right. Boder and, and Duffy Dyer. And you imagine it's this long table. of uh, it, it was a rectangle table, so it wasn't, you really couldn't hear at the end, but I was sitting right next to Ryan Boder. So that was uh, a thrill. So each team had two coaches? Some had three. Yeah. Okay. Right. There were 11. Yeah, that would make sense. Right. And so you had Ron Swoboda and Duffy Dyer. Yeah. And uh, what position did you play? Well, actually, I started out playing third base. Uh, I, I Being the rookie, I sat on the bench, even though everybody batted. Everybody batted. So, you know, it wasn't just nine batters. He had 11 batters. About the third, fourth inning, the guy came out. I don't want you to take third base for a while. So I went to third. And I got a new appreciation of what the field is because well, that's, that's a long throw from third base to first base. I mean, that is a long throw. So after that, uh, I went into the outfield, played right field for a while until our left fielder broke his ankle. So then I went, I went to left field. Wait a minute. Yes. You, somebody broke their ankle during yes, fantasy camp. They, they broke their ankle. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, on a uh, he tried to make a, a catch, actually made the catch, and he played the next two games on a broken ankle. He didn't know it was bro- broken at the time. Okay, went to the trainers, they iced this, blah blah blah, and then after wow. it, they said, you know what, maybe she goes to the hospital. Yeah. Did you have to sign waivers and things like that? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah wow. Now, how old was this person who broke their ankle? About forty. Wow. Was that the only major injury? of That the, was the uh, major injury, yes. I mean, a lot of people needed ice, and, and they got into the ice bath and in the whirlpool, and uh, I got rubbed down a couple of just to uh, you know get stretched out. But yeah, you got a new appreciation of what these guys go through. Now, you, had, uh, you went into the ice bath? The ice bath. I lasted in the ice, only up to my knees, and I lasted maybe 33 seconds. And I got the hell out of there. Oh, so you didn't even go full like in no, the ice bath. Was, it was so cold. <laughs> really? Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's like uh, the, 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 the ice bucket challenge, right? With, yes. For the, wow. oh, but yeah, for the, yeah. Right. So uh, why don't I play these two interviews? One with Duffy Dyer. The first yeah. one with Duffy Dyer. And the second one is with Joe Youngblood. Very good. And then when we get back. We will get into uh, Andy Husbands. Okay. So, Duffy, Gil Hodges was your first manager, correct? Correct. Yes, sir. And how was he as a manager? He was great. He was, uh, I think, the best manager I uh, ever had. And I had uh, quite a few Hall of Fame managers. But uh, Gil was great. He uh, was always thinking ahead a couple of hitters. And uh, he was very well respected by everybody. And uh, certainly should be in the Hall of Fame. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell us about your, your playing career. You went to Arizona State. Were you in the, were you in the College World Series as well? Yes, uh, we won the College World Series in 1965 and uh, came close in 1966 to going back to Omaha but didn't quite make it and uh, had a couple great teams. Was lucky to play with a lot of great players in 65. I played with Rick Mundy and Sal Bando. And uh, 66, I uh, played with Reggie Jackson. Ah, not uh, bad. Reggie was uh, our center fielder. And so it was a great experience for me. Ah, so uh, can you tell me about the 73 team? You got to believe. Oh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a fun year. We weren't a great team during the season. We played uh, one or two games over 500, in fact, but uh, ended up winning in the division, I think, the last day of the season. Uh-huh. And uh, ended up uh, knocking off the uh, Big Red Machine in the National League playoffs. So that was, that was, that was a big upset. But uh, 
we were playing well at the end of the season and then snuck in uh, to win it. And then uh, in the playoffs, we played very good. And we actually had a good World Series against Oakland. Had them down three games to two and went back out to Oakland. And I think we should have won game six. But when we didn't, uh, they came back and beat us in that game. And then uh, we didn't play too well in uh, game seven. And and they ended up winning it. But uh, overall, it was a good year. Absolutely. You caught some of the great pitchers of all time. Seaver, obviously, Kuzman, Matlack, Gentry, Nolan Ryan. Tell me about your experience catching those guys. Oh, it was great. I was lucky to come up in an organization that had great pitching. And uh, to catch those guys especially. And I caught a few other real good ones. John Candelari, I was able to catch his no-hitter after going to Pittsburgh. But uh, I caught Steve Rogers in Montreal. And, and those were the better pitchers that I caught. But uh, overall, in my uh, career, I was able to catch a lot of very good pitchers, uh, starting with Seaver and Kuzman. I think Kuzman is one of the most underrated pitchers in baseball. I mean, we all knew about him in New York, but I, I think all over the country, uh, most people didn't know that much about him. And uh, he wasn't far behind Seaver. He was not. And, uh, he was not. I think he was very underrated, but uh, our pitching and our defense has really won it, mostly won it for us in 69. But uh, again, back to 69, I think one big uh, change in that was uh, when we traded for Don Clendenin. That really helped their offense, so that was it. One, one last question. Did you see Nolan Ryan becoming a Hall of Famer? Uh, I knew he had the stuff to do it, but I didn't think he was consistent enough to do it. But once we traded him and he got a chance to pitch every fifth day, he actually learned how to pitch in uh, the big leagues because uh, at the time he was with us, we had such good starting pitchers. A rotation that he didn't really get a chance to get the ball every fifth day and uh, he wasn't quite consistent enough with his command so uh, he he was a long reliever and a spot starter but mm-hmm. stuff wise he certainly uh, we knew he had a chance to become a Hall of Famer. Great well thank you for your time. Okay appreciate it. So I'm here with 14-year vet Joel Youngblood great player who played for five teams Five teams, Cincinnati Reds, New York Mets, San Francisco Giants, St. Louis Cardinals, and? Montreal Expos. Montreal Expos. You came up with the uh, Cincinnati Reds, the Big Red Machine. Yes, I did. Yeah, tell me about that. Well, it was uh, pretty exciting to be signed uh, by the Cincinnati Reds until I realized what kind of team they had. I played behind Pete Rose for about six years in the minor leagues, which was very difficult to move. and But all the other positions were crowded, too, with Johnny Bench. Concepcion, Tony Perez, and all these guys like that. So, but it was it was a team that uh, kind of forced you as a young player to work harder to try to get better because the requirements to get to the big league team were 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 great. They were big, and so we always had to try to maximize our potential so we could make the major league roster. Then one day, hopefully, make a major league team. Yeah, you got into 55 games of them that year. Did you participate in the playoffs and World Series? In 76, I made the team out of spring training. Oh, you made the spring out of spring training. Yeah. And uh, uh, so I made the team out of uh, spring training, but they had a World Series winning team. I had to lead the league in hitting. Uh I had to lead the team in hitting in spring training to make the team. So I'll tell you how tough it was. (laughs) (laughs) And then you you went to St. Louis. Were you traded there or you... uh... Well, uh, I was traded the next spring training. 
the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals was my AAA coach for three years okay. in Cincinnati, mm-hmm. Vern Rapp. So he knew a little bit about me, and, and the Reds wanted to make some room for Ray Knight. Mm-hmm. And so Vern Rapp uh, traded for me to the St. Louis Cardinals. So I, I was kind of really excited about it, but on the other hand, they had Bake McBride, they had Lou Brock, and they had three other outfielders. That was Tony Scott, Jerry Muffrey, and myself. Well, Tony Scott got the first try, uh, you know, and hit 300 that year, so nobody else got a chance to play. I was 20 for 40 in spring training with four home runs, and I got 27 at bats. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so but, it was it was tough back in the day. Um, you know, there was less teams, right. more 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 uh, less room to make the big leagues, uh, better players. Uh, so it was very tough. It was mm-hmm. it was you know then then after that I got I got traded to New York and. Yeah. You know, and then the Seaver trade, I was kind of put behind again because mm-hmm. the guys that were in the Seaver trade, some of the outfielders were behind me in Cincinnati. And so I just had to wait my opportunity and I'd be ready for an opportunity. And when I got the opportunity, I tried to take advantage of it. Yeah, you were stuck with the Mets for six years. Yep. A, a, a fan favorite, I got to tell you. <laughs> you know, I know I, I love watching you, watching you play. Uh, you played third base and the outfield. And uh, who was your manager with the Mets at that time? It was in the 70s, so it was Joe Torrey? Joe Torrey. Joe Torrey, right. My favorite manager. Oh, was you know, he? And, I, and I, I've, I've played for some good ones. I've right. played for, you know, Sparky and and uh, Roger Craig and uh, Frank Robinson. And, you know, I played for some good managers. And, and But Joe Torrey by far was uh, my favorite manager, and I, I highly respect him, and uh, highly I, I care about him a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a good man. Yeah, that was his first gig yeah. as oh. manager. Yeah, but he was destined to be a, uh-huh. a successful manager. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They, they, that was some tough years for the Mets, yeah. obviously. Well, we, you know, we, we try to develop younger players to see, uh-huh. you know, what the progress would be in the future. And everybody's playing hard and everybody's playing young. And, you know, the Mets management is trying to make decisions how to improve the team to, mm-hmm. to bring that World Series like they did. Yeah. There's one trade that everybody talks about with you. Yeah. Yeah. The two hits, two teams, same day. Yeah. Tell us how crazy well, that day was. Well, uh, that was that was in uh, 1982, and and um, I made the All-Star team for the Mets in 1981, and and unfortunately I didn't get a chance to play in '82, so I became a free agent or was going to become a free agent because it was obvious the Mets didn't want to play me, and which was okay. I I, I accept anything that that's thrown my 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 way. It's it's my responsibility to come back from those positions. And uh, uh, so at the end of the season in August, uh, I was traded and we were in Chicago and I happened to be playing probably to make sure they weren't getting somebody that wasn't playing well. I was playing center field, batting third, I believe. Uh, Got a base hit my first at bat, knocked in two runs and, you know, and two innings later I was taken out of the game and and, uh, and then... uh, I was told that I was traded to Montreal Expos, who Vern Rapp was one of the coaches with the Montreal Expos, so I'm sure he was a major influence for me going there. And uh, and they said they told me they said would you would you do everything you can to get to Philadelphia because they're short players? And I said absolutely, that's that's who I am. Mm-hmm. And I was able to manage that and get there. And I arrived at nine oh. I probably got there the ballpark at nine thirty. I probably got on the on the bench by nine forty-five. Uh, I laid on on the turf, waved to Pete Rose across the way. He waved back, and the next thing I heard was, Youngblood, get a bat, you're up. And uh, uh, I went up against one of my favorite people, Steve Carlton, as a friend and as a pitcher. uh, uh, And I was able to get a base hit off of him. And the first game, it was Fergie Jenkins. And 
Oh. You know, it was, just too, it was just two base hits. I didn't think that was any big deal, okay. but uh, the circumstances of, of that, you know, flying east, mm-hmm. you know, playing in a day game, it was a long day. I was very tired at the end yeah. of the day, but, uh, you know, uh, the way I look at it, I'll always be remembered for something. <laughs> <laughs> Fergie Jenkins and Steve Carlton, two Hall of Famers. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So we're here at Mets Fantasy Camp. You, How long have you been doing this? Uh, I, I haven't been back to the Mets fantasy camp for 15 years because normally what's happened is the teams that I played with, I could stagger the fantasy camp. So I, I came to the Mets fantasy, I mean, the Mets fantasy camp probably about, you know, 10 to 15 years before that. And, uh, but all of a sudden all the fantasy camps started on the same day and mm-hmm. the Giants were 10 minutes from my house where okay. I live. And so that was the obvious decision. So I hadn't mm-hmm. been here in a while and. You know, Doug called me up and said, you know, would you consider coming back to the Mets? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and so the time period was perfect for me. And and, and uh, I have to tell everybody, New York was my favorite place to play. Uh-huh. Uh, I'll never, I mean, if an athlete has an opportunity to play in New York, it's a dream come true. So uh, coming back and, 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 you know, hanging out with, you know, Met fans and, baseball lovers it's a dream for me so it's a perfect mix for me and so i'm i'm very proud to be here well i gotta just tell everybody that i was struggling when i when before i got into the batting cage with with joe youngblood and next day i got a couple of hits and including a triple so i forever grateful on something i'll never forget oh well that's perfect well thank you for having me with you and uh i hope the fans uh enjoy the season coming up and because the mets are a phenomenal organization they they treat everybody correctly and fair and uh i, I wish them nothing but the success no thank you for your time you're welcome right. jeff yo you don't need me oh please you do not need me. Oh, stop it. Those were phenomenal interviews. Really, really good. I, I thought I was it was like listening to an ESPN. Uh, I was going to say, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, all of a sudden, I can't remember the guy. But anyway, I'm so glad you had a great time at Fantasy Camp. And I really, I, I think I think it's just incredible. But now, let's, why don't we get to our interview yeah. with the incredible. Barbecue. Yeah. Incredible Andy Husbands. So here's Andy. Andy Husbands is a restaurateur with over 27 years of experience owning and operating award-winning restaurants in Boston, including the Smoke Shop BBQ at locations in Kendall Square and the Seaport. Known as Boston's top pitmaster, Husbands spent years on the competitive BBQ circuit and has earned local and national praise, including appearances on the Food Network and being named the 2014 Massachusetts Restaurant Association Chef, Chef of the Year. Additionally, Husband is an accomplished author of five award-winning cookbooks, including his newest, Pitmaster. Deeply rooted in the community, Husband is a large contributor to Share Our Strength, and the nation's leading hunger relief organization, as well as an active board member of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association and the Rodman Celebration Restaurant Chair. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Andy Husbands. Honored to be here. Thank you very much. Wow. Uh, with, with a bio like that, we, I think we... There's nothing more to say. <laughs> <laughs> the crazy, the crazy part is, I think I goofed up, and you have the wrong bio because I've written six cookbooks, and ah. the most re- most recent one is uh, Backyard Barbecue. So, yes, uh, you know, six. I'm looking on the Amazon site, and I see six. I go, oh, why does that say five? But it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Yes. Uh-huh. So, Andy, you you're in the Boston area, but you didn't start out there. You were 
way on the other side of the continent on, of, of the United States in, in Seattle. That's where you grew up, right? Yeah, I was born, born and raised in Seattle. I mean, I moved out here when I was 14. So um, I've been, you know, essentially out here in, in the Boston area for a long time now. Andy, you're, you're the kind of guy that we, we book as a guest. And then I get to, and you know, I'm thinking Andy Husband's going to be a great interview. He's done mm-hmm. a lot. But then I get to do what I call stalking. And I find, wow, there's not much you haven't done. You have a Wikipedia page. And so anybody with a Wikipedia page, you got to be something. <laughs> I, I, I think the rule, the rule is anybody can write one of those. But thank you. I appreciate oh, see, it. <laughs> Jeff, we got to start writing one. Yes. <laughs> So I saw, though, on Wikipedia, it mentioned that you in 1995, you went on this cross country. What was it? A motorcycle trip? Yeah, I lived on a farm in Santa Fe. I worked on a uh, for a very renowned farmer. Her name is Elizabeth Berry. And I worked on that farm for about three months, maybe longer. I can't remember. And then I rode to San Francisco with my bike to San Francisco. And there I um, I uh, worked in various restaurants out in San Francisco for a while. Nice. Very nice. And then, of course, if I didn't bring it up, what 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 kind of interviewer would I be? You, of course, were on Hell's Kitchen. True. I, I'm not going to ask. Well, I am going to ask you what you thought of him. I, I'm not the biggest Gordon Ramsay fan. Probably that will keep him from coming on this show. I don't know your feelings about him, but I just feel like the guy has, you know, He's loud and louder and nasty and nastier. So, but maybe I'm wrong. You, you were um, on the show with him. Yeah. What say so you? So they came to our, uh, a, a production company came to my restaurant and one of my old restaurants and wanted to do a, like a, a, a TV show about it. And they, they hung out with us for a week. They taped a bunch of stuff. And at the end, they're like, yeah, we're not going to do that because you're boring. <laughs> and that's how that's how a restaurant should run. I mean, it should be entertainment and exciting in in with what you do. But um, those kind of fireworks are are man made. And um, you know, I didn't really get a chance to know uh, Chef Ramsay. Basically, we saw him during service, and he was a maniac, and it was an act. I mean, it's his truth. He can be that way. He's not a great actor. Like he's acting. He's just an exaggerated version of himself. So what do I think about him? I don't really know him. I don't really care about him. You know, it's just the show was interesting to be on. But and, and I'm always surprised when people think that it's real, when it's just it is staged in a way that the producers are able to make it be an interesting show. You know, when you do sleep deprivation, when you when you remove all communication, when you take people's controls away after many weeks, things start to get wacky. And that's kind of what they do. You know, I'm glad I did it because it was an interesting experiment, but it certainly didn't impact me, didn't make me a better cook, didn't make me a better manager, didn't make me a better human being. Um, it was just kind of something I did for a little bit of a time. Yeah. yeah. No business. It's fun. <laughs> There's no yeah. business like show business. <laughs> yeah, but, but, uh, but I would tell you that, you know, I'm a, I'm a judge on a show uh, called Firemasters. That's uh, taped in Canada. They're just an amazing group of people. It's on the Canadian Food Network and also um, Cooking Channel in America. And I'd encourage anyone to watch it because it's real. It's about real food. Um, these people are cooking their hearts out. 
They get an opportunity to win $10,000. You know, they're just really good cooks with great ideas. And it's a, it's a certainly competition. And, you know, it is exciting, kind of like the British Bake Off, but there's no yelling and screaming. You know, a famous chef once said that a, somebody was talking about Ramsey and was saying that, you know, a, a chef who's screaming and yelling is really upset because they haven't prepared their team for what is to come, mm. you know? And so you have to train and motivate your team to do, to do the right thing. And you can go uh, the Bobby Knight version and throw chairs, or you can go, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the loving nurturing version that that's what we like to do. You know, that's what I think food's about. I think food's about love and nurturing and, and celebration. The, the thing that I don't like about those shows and this is one of those types of shows. It, it, there was a show called Dance Moms. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, you know, not cooking, but these were kids, you know, on a dance team. And mm-hmm. they were very good dancers, but, you know, it was dance recitals. But the mothers were always fighting, right? And there was all, yeah. there had to be drama. So it's just, you know, there has to be drama. And that just, I, I hate that because it's all it, like you said, it's manufactured. Yeah, Gordon's going to hate a dish. Why? Uh-huh. Because if he goes in there and everything is fine and going well, there's uh-huh. no show. Yeah. So, but, but, you know, Leonard, that's why you'll never be programming TV. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Because Damn, cause, cross you know, that one off the list. <laughs> just because, you know, you don't like it. Right. But you're right. And so like, you know, on Hell's Kitchen, Look, I can cook salmon blindfolded. I can cook salmon all day long. You know, it's what I train to do is cook fish. So you cook and you bring it to him. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's a piece of crap and throws it on the ground. And you're like, that's just silly. Like, it's just like I, I was not young. You know, I was probably in my 30s, I think, you know, mid 30s. So like, I was like, that's just stupid. You know, like, I, I just, it's just, I'm for, and I used to get on the producers a lot about wasting food. They waste a lot of food. And I think, um, you know, I'm a guy and you mentioned in my bio that, you know, I believe in hunger relief, especially for children. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I strive not to waste food. I, I just I think it's ridiculous and I don't care if it's for TV. It's still silly. Right. Right. Uh, it, it, in your bio, you said that it looks like you're in a competitive BBQ circuit and you have a, a team called IQ Barbecue and which won the Jack Daniels back in 2010. How, tell us about that experience. 2009. And I just need to mention that first of all, I am the co-founder of this team called IQ. I and uh, and by the way, and the other co-founder is Chris Hart. Chris Hart is who I write my cooks, cookbooks with. He wrote, we wrote Pitmaster, which is our best-selling book, and he is our lead pitmaster on the team. I have to say that because people often think that because I'm the professional chef and I'm the leader, and really it's Chris is Chris is the mastermind. I'm just the guy washing the dishes, helping out, you know, assisting a little bit. But winning, winning any championship is 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 amazing, and you know, it is a culmination of many years of hard work and research, and you know, just it's a really really cool thing to do. I, I just can't. It's hard to put words on it. You know, it's it's special, and you know, there's not that many world champions, maybe 35 or something like that, so 37 maybe. So it's it's pretty cool uh, to have our team be one of those. And it says that your uh, your team is like the only one from New England, or the first one from New England to win it. Which got, yeah, because there was another there's another team that followed us and uh, ah. pitmaster Pit Bill Gillespie, um, and he's amazing. But yes, we were the first non not even not New England non Southern team to win the World Championships. We also won brisket in Kansas City 
out of 510 teams at the Royal. So, you know, those are the two of the biggest. It's really, in my opinion, but people have other opinions. Three really big ones, Memphis and May. There's the, the Royal and then the Jack. Right. Um, the Jack, Jack is often, which is the one we won, often referred to as the Super Bowl of barbecue. It's really the best of the best. Now, nice. now Andy, when you're coming from New England, right, you're there. And, uh, well, you don't have a Boston accent, but I'm going to grill the, you know, we're going to park the car and then we're going to grill some brisket. <laughs> and, Sorry? you know, they, they look at you like, ah, uh, oh, this New Englander. And then you, you, you smoke them. <laughs> so <laughs> and, uh, it, just, just, you know, we qualified and went to it about eight years in a row. And you have to wow. qualify. You, you actually have to qualify like you would a like you would a marathon. You have to qualify in another event to even get in, get it get it asked to go. Um, and we had gone um, for about eight years until we won won the world championships. We were in the beginning maybe a little cocky and a little New Englandish, but we we're fortunate enough to be very good friends with and mentored by um, Mike Mike the Legend Mills. He recently passed unfortunately, and his daughter Amy Mills from Seventeenth Street. Uh, they mentored us. They really kind of took us under their wing and helped us kind of acclimate to a different world that we weren't used to. And that's really what barbecue is about. It's about friendship and celebration. Mm-hmm. We were, you know, by the time we won, everybody knew who we were and, you know, we had earned, they knew we earned it. Now, Andy, in 1996, you opened Tremont 647. Mm-hmm. Not a barbecue restaurant. No. Okay. What type of food did you serve there? It's like a fancy American bistro when it first opened. Yeah, I had that restaurant for 20 years, believe it or not. And uh, it was a really cool experience. And, uh, you know, like one of those places where the menu changes every uh, every day or every week, depending on what I felt like doing, changing with the season, very high energy, fun restaurant that was, uh, you know, it was very successful. And I, I do miss it. But then you went off in another direction and yes. you... Open up uh, numerous smoke shop barbecues, right? And which Correct. are, you have been called the best pit master in Boston. And mm-hmm. yeah. so I'm just, that's a, that's, you know, what they, could you say that's a 180? <laughs> I, I always um, say a 360, but then you come full circle. It's a 180. Yeah. Sure. Yes. I mean, hospitality business is the hospitality business. So that's just taking care of people and, your teams and making sure everyone's happy and enjoying while I owned that restaurant is when I was competing. So I would compete, you know, 20 times a year. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily, it was something that was in my life and that I was doing. Maybe I wasn't serving in the restaurant, but those that knew me in the Boston area knew that I was doing barbecue kind of as a, a thing on the side. And so I had that restaurant for 20 years and, 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 and that's great, but I wanted to change, you know, I wanted to do something new. So right. it, for those that knew me, it wasn't necessarily like, oh, oh my God, I can't believe he's doing that. Uh, it was more like, we're really psyched he's doing that and we can't wait. And you have how many now? You, you... I have five. You do I have five. five. Okay. I have yeah. five now and um, we're working on another one. So it'll be six come this spring. Nice. So, how, how, obviously, it's very popular. You're opening up five or six now. What type of dishes are, are the most popular in, in the Boston area since it's really not known as a barbecue town like Kansas City or, or Memphis? Sure. So what, what, sure. what's popular there? Brisket. You know, we do a Texas-style brisket. And just to be clear about what we do, we kind of pay homage to the great barbecue that I've seen and cooked around the country. So we're not a roadhouse, a Texas roadhouse. We are 
a little bit of everything. So our ribs are pretty popular. Um, that's like a combination, kind of a Memphis, a Memphis E sort of rib. It's not exactly has a region that it comes from, but probably our brisket or our burnt ends are uh, the, the most popular. You know, Andy, I'm not, I don't want to, um, this is not meant to make Jeff upset, but I am sure you've heard this so many times because in New York, everyone hears it too. Oh, well, you got great barbecue, but you know, New York, Boston, you know, New England, they're not known as barbecue towns. And uh, <laughs> you'll say, I never hear that. <laughs> but you get tired well, of the, that because we in New York have some great barbecue restaurants. And mm-hmm. obviously yeah. you have in Boston as well. So what, what do you say to people that, that say that? Just, I guess. Just well, you, you guys, I mean, you guys have home hometown barbecue, which is one of my favorite in Brooklyn. Right. Uh, big, big shout out to Bill Durney. He's amazing. It's myopic, but I understand where they're coming from. You know, what New York is one of the things New York's known for is pizza, right? And so you're like, we have the best pizza. We're from New York. We know pizza. But fun fact that most people believe the best pizza restaurant is in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm sure he gets that same question. Uh, Barbecue pizza delicatessens, they have something which I like to call a kind of a fond memory reaction. And people go, you know, hypothetically, they say, I'm from Brooklyn. How could you have a better deli than us? Or (laughs) I'm from the, what we hear is I'm from name your Southern state. And how could you, how could your barbecue be any good? And I'm like, well, we don't really want to be better than anybody. You know, we want you to keep your fond memories. We'd like to just to be a close second to what you love. We don't claim to be traditional. Look, I know how to make kimchi, but I would never call it traditional kimchi because I'm not Korean, you know, so I don't call my barbecue traditional, but it is a homage. It is a, you know, a tribute cuisine to it. But I would point out that there's nothing they can get that I can't. There is no, there's no ingredient they can get. There's no smoker I can get. There's no wood I can't get. I can get it all. So if I can get everything you can get, then it's the playing field somewhat equal. And the next step is how you cook it. And I will tell you that Look, I hadn't had a real rib until I was until 1992. That was the first time I ever had a real rib. You know, my father used to grill like country style ribs with like KC masterpiece on it or something. No, it was right. fine as a kid. That's great, but that was 1992, a long time ago. Uh, about five years after 1992, so in 1997 is where when I started competing. For the first five years of competing, we sucked. We had the best time ever. You know, it's a guys getting together, cussing, drinking bourbon, and competing. And losing, we lost a lot. But like any sport or any craft, what you have to do is the work. And that's what we did. We did the work. And if you do the work in any cuisine, in any craft, if you want to run a marathon, you've got to do the work. And that's what we did. So, how could there be great barbecue in Boston? Because I did the work and I did it for a really long time. Very that That's perfect answer. I mean, it, it's, it, it's inspiring that, you know, if you want to do it right, you know, get experience <laughs> and doing it right. Absolutely. What type of, yeah. Uh, and you know, and then I, and then I, and then I asked them if they want, and then I asked them if they won the world championships. <laughs> and then he takes uh, out know. his big, whatever trophy and puts it on their table <laughs> right in front of their ribs and says, here, eat through this. <laughs> So I, I was looking through, uh, doing some, some research, and you were on a couple of shows, I guess, morning shows, whatever, talking about barbecue. And you, you go 
brisket, they have to the smoke it going like 24 hours. What kind of uh, equipment do you use? I mean, obviously, it's not like us well, backyard barbecues here that we use a smoker, but you know, what well, it, de- it depends. I mean, so we use all different things from all hickories, JR Smoke Masters. But if you know, I have a Lang, which is a trailer, uh, Humphreys is what I use at home. If you haven't had a chance, check out Humphreys. They're out of Maine. You can order them delivered. They're amazing. Um, we compete on a Jambo, which is like a $14,000 rig. It's like the Corvette mm-hmm. of barbecue. So it really just depends. But look, I, 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 I'll use a WSF, Weber Smoky Mountain. Those are great too, you know. That's what we started on and I still use them. You know, I teach lots of classes and that's the one I, I, I show. Um, that's what I have, one, one of yeah. mine, Weber Smoky yeah. Mountain. I personally shy away from anything that's set it and forget it. Besides a crock pot to make your corned beef and cabbage, I don't, there's, you know, it's so funny. And, and I teach lots of classes. And I know who my guests are and I know where they shop and they buy high end food and they look for the best ingredients. And that's great. But then to put it in something and just set it and forget it, it's like, I just try to tell them it's like dominating, dominating the defense for, you know, and taking the ball to the 10 yard line every time kicking a field goal. Just like, yeah, I'm going to kick a field goal. It's easier. I'll just do that. Mm. You know, from good to great. What do you want to be? You want to be good? Go ahead. Use your set and don't forget it. I think you can put world. I think you can make world-class barbecue on a Weber Smoky Mountain. And I think you can do it on a Lang. And I think you can do it on an old Hickory. Really just depends on, you know, what you want to use, what kind of space you want. Look, I also have a big green egg. Love those, you know, Uh, those style grills, you know, the ceramic style grills. uh, They work great. They They don't have a lot of space. So that's why I have to have a smoker also. But those are great. You know, so I want to ask you again, again about your, your restaurant, the smoke shop. Uh, you also have like the world's largest whiskey collection. I'm looking at the picture there. Right? <laughs> with, with, does whiskey go with barbecue? Apparently it yeah. does. I mean, what's let me just let me correct you. So we don't have the world's largest. We have New England's largest American whiskey collection. OK, um, there are some places, you know, we have about 400 labels. There are places in, I think, in D.C., that um, have about 1,500 labels, you know, so there's mm-hmm. a, a lot different. So let's talk about whiskey. Let's talk about bourbon, right? So bourbon is, it is vanilla, it is oak, right? It is sweet, it is spicy. These are all things, you know, that we talk about when we talk about barbecue. Where is it made traditionally from? The South, traditionally made with oak. Do we use oak for barbecue? So these flavors, I don't think it's any accident that these flavors go so well together. I think it's like French food and growing French wines, right? Like there's a reason why these things happen or or even better would be Japan and sake, right? Made from rice. They eat a lot of rice. Like it's a really interesting kind of premise. Barbecue is a cuisine um, of, of necessity, right? It was, they used what was around them, right? You know, or, or people brought stuff with them as they moved to the South or moved wherever. And that, though, that's what became more popular. That's why we see pork in, in the Carolinas because they grew a lot of pork. That's how we see beef in Texas because they grew a lot of uh, c- cattle. So it's, it's really interesting, the cuisine and necessity. Fun fact, as I'm sure you know, that South Carolina is known for uh, mustard sauce, right? South Carolina mustard sauce, which is fantastic. The question is why? And I don't answer it. And, and do you have a guess? You know why mustard sauce? Len would know more than I would. <laughs> well, well, no, okay. I, 
So what cuisine, what cuisine is known for mustard? What cuisine? Hot dogs. <laughs> okay. You're, you're really close. You're really, really close. What region, what part of the world used mustard a lot? Oh, uh, Germany. Okay. So Germans, Alsatian, mustard, right? Mm -hmm. A bunch of Germans moved from Germany to South Carolina and brought that mustard with them. So it's a cuisine of, you know, of, of invention. It's a cuisine that kind of came out of things. And so they used what their heritage had and kind of translated it into barbecue. It really is a cool thing of how the history of barbecue is fascinating and, and, and how things came about. Absolutely fascinating. And you, Glenn, we learn something new every day. And I know what I learned today. Andy, so you have five uh, barbecue restaurants, and I don't know mm -hmm. how close they are in vicinity to, to each other. But one of the things that they say about restaurateurs and, and opening, you know, more than one location is the lack of what you lose in control. Mm -hmm. So how how do you determine when you're ready, one, to open another restaurant? And where are you working out of? You know, you have five barbecue restaurants. How tell tell us a little about the system and how you go from one to one. And well, there's a famous uh, some there's a famous French chef. I can't remember his name at the moment, but he was at a big charity event, and they asked him, "Hey, hey, chef, who, who's cooking at your restaurant when you're not there?" And his answer was, "The same guy that's cooking when I am there." So what it is, is a chef's job isn't necessarily to cook. You need to be a good cook. You need to understand and know how to do it. But your job is to teach and lead. So that's my job. My job is to teach and lead. But when we had one, we opened up two really quickly, second one very quickly, and it was pretty easy. When we got to three, it got really hard. And we realized we didn't have enough systems. So we had to hire the right people who knew how to put in systems. I'm a single unit guy. That's, that's my history. That's what I've done all my life is working single, small, 150, 50 to 100 seat restaurants. So I had to learn a lot. One of the biggest things I had to learn was to hire the right people and let them do their job, not get in the way, not try to control, let them do their job. They've been trained and hired to do something, let them do it. And we're very fortunate to have a really amazing team. I'll tell you, going through COVID, the, one of the best things about going through COVID was the people around me. They were just dedicated, hardworking, really smart. And we just kind of really worked together to in a really difficult situation. And it's very rewarding in, the, in that. So what we do, right? So my job is, is, is one is to lead and teach. But my job is also the future. Today's services is I'm just floating around talking to people. And I decide where I want to go just by, you know, I just try to move around. I try not to be in the same place more than two days in a row. And motion is waste. So running from one restaurant to another is, is, unless I have to, I really try not to because I'm not doing anybody any good driving through Boston traffic. But, you know, and, but my job is the future. My job is to prepare the teams for what's coming. You know, I'm looking two years, three years down the line. I'm trying to figure out where are we going to be? What are we going to be doing? You know, so that's kind of my job. And then, you know, constantly eating product, you know, testing stuff coming up with new ideas, but we don't really change our menu too much, but how we do things, uh, systems, that kind of stuff. And do uh -huh. you try out the new recipes at the, for your cookbooks? Do you try them out at the restaurants? Absolutely not. The way that works with new re recipes, when I write cookbooks and I've written 
so as I said, six cookbooks. So I've been doing this a long time. So what will happen is, you know, I'll sketch a recipe. You know, I may test a little bit of it, but what I'll do is I'll write the recipe and then we give it to our testers. And so these testers are people who work at home you know, with a home kitchen because you don't want to test it. Me testing a recipe doesn't do any good because I didn't know how to cook it. So I might take shortcuts or I might kind of speed over something. But with a, um, with a home cook, you know, they'll use home, home stoves and she'll follow it and she'll, then she brings it to me the next day and we'll, we'll taste it and try it and see what worked and what didn't work. And then um, either it gets accepted or we have to go back to the drawing board or, or, or sometimes it's like, this is awful, drop it, you know? Um, the last cookbook I wrote, which is about kind of large party dining, like gatherings, you know, large gatherings, which I'll just give anybody who wants some advice. Don't release a book about large gatherings or backyard parties right before a pandemic. Not the best time to release right. a book. That, now that's that's book. good advice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, we, so that book, I think has a hundred plus recipes. We wrote 200 recipes. And we had, we had, which was great. It's like, right. It's like writing an album. You know, they write lots of music and then they figure out which ones are, uh, you know, which ones are going to make it and which ones are not, you know? I want to switch gears here for a moment. You mentioned that you you do judging. Uh, you're involved in that. I noticed recently you were at the Dallas kosher barbecue championships. I want you, uh, if you can mm -hmm. tell us about that experience, was there a, a rabbi there to, to make sure it was all kosher or, uh, you make sure oh, everything yeah. Oh, okay. oh no, it was, it, was, it was a real deal. So like they got the meats given to them, which were, you know, all kosher meats. Um, and, you know, obviously there was no pork. Instead they did um, uh, turkey and turkey, chicken, beef rib and brisket. So two beefs, chicken, two poultries. And um, in fact, all the, all the smokers, which were the larger WSMs and they had large WSMs and they had grills. And those were those are only used once a year for this competition. You know they're they're super kosher, so no one's ever cooked anything else on them. The event organizer stores them and then brings them out every year. So it's it's kind of neat, and uh, it was an interesting time. I went down there with a buddy of mine, and we had a fabulous time in Dallas eating food and checking stuff out, and I uh, got to meet some great people. And you know, these weren't necessarily the most these I don't think a lot of people had comp competed a lot, uh, but I love I love barbecue, and when I mean barbecue, I mean all of it. I love from competitions to restaurants to gatherings. I just love it, and I love what it represents, and it represents community. And so this was super cool to see a community of people trying their best to cook, and that was that was to me really great. Well, we have in uh, in New York we have Izzy Eidelman, Izzy's Barbecue. It's one of the best. Sure. Forget kosher. It's one of the best barbecue around. And he won a contest. And I remember reading something saying, you know, the trophy that he received had on it, you know, uh, I think it was a platter of ribs or someone holding ribs. And it said it, it looks like something that he couldn't actually cook. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, no, um, he's very he's very talented. I believe he's opening up yeah. in Miami, too, I, 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 or, or Florida somewhere. I think I heard that. Super talented, though. And with, yeah. what's, I mean, and again, uh, there's a New York restaurant, right? We know, you know, there's, I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of barbecue out there. Not all of it's great, but you guys got some great ones there. And that's pretty cool. You know, we got BTs here. If you ever have a chance in Sturbridge Bass, the guy's a genius, Brian. So 
there's some good, you know, good barbecue outside of the South. And I, I think that's amazing. I think that's great. Yeah. I think it's good that the barbecue has become, uh, I ask a lot of guests, barbecue has become huge. I ask a lot of guests. Why do you think barbecue has become as big as it has? You're asking me why I think so. Cause I think it's, yeah. I think it's finally being viewed as a craft for one. People understand that that good barbecue isn't just something that anybody can do. I think we see this um, with uh, Aaron Franklin and Rodney Scott winning Beard Awards, right? Like, I mean, who would have thought 15 years ago that that could have ever happened? And I think, you know, there's a difference between mediocre and then really good barbecue. And I think because it's gaining steam, we're seeing better barbecue and therefore people are realizing, oh, you know, because definitely up north, you know, they had so much bad barbecue for so long that they're like, meh. You know, like not really into it, but I think it's being seen as a craft, treated as a craft. And um, I think people are, you know, enjoying it. You know, look, I serve 10,000 people a week easily. Wow. You mentioned earlier. Tip. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier about wasting food. So that, and I that brings us to one of your, uh, I guess, one of your passions is, is the charity Share Our Strength about hunger and, and a relief organization. Tell us your involvement in that and how you got involved. In 1987, I worked for a gentleman named Guy Abelson. And he he was, a, I think I was, he was a board member of Share Our Strength and uh, kind of said, you know, t- talk to me about getting involved and getting involved in the community. Um, it was hard for me to really grasp at that time. You know, I was a college kid, had other focuses that I had. But it was still important to have that mentoring. And um, when I moved to Boston, I got more involved with them. Uh, some people, you know, no, no Kid Hungry is the name, but a lot of people may know them as, um, I'm sorry, Cheryl Strength is the name. A lot of people know, may know them as no, no Kid Hungry. There's a big giant event that happens in New York, at least used to, probably won't come back. You know, it's an, it's a, it's an event, that's, it's, a, it's a great organization. What's really great about it is, uh, here's the cool thing. So they have this thing called Breakfast After the Bell. And they created this. They started working in Denver, I think, where they started to other places as well. Basically, they realized that, you know, school lunch or school breakfast, maybe 10% of eligible participants were taking, getting school breakfast. Why weren't they taking it? Because it was stigmatic to be that kid in the lunchroom eating a free breakfast because they couldn't get there early because they ride a bus. Whatever reason that this wasn't happening. So what they did is they pr- approached... You know, it was, I think, the governor in Colorado, I, I believe. And it's like, let's let's make it after the bell. So it's in the first period. Everybody eats breakfast. What excited the states about it is it's actually federally funded money. So they didn't have to put a dime in. They had to get the teachers unions and the janitor, union, janitor unions to kind of agree to this, finally get that through. So what happens when you magically feed, ch- when you, not magically, when you feed children breakfast? Here's what magically happens. Test scores go up. Disciplinary goes down. Attendance goes up just by feeding children. And I I think a lot of people, uh, there are people who, not a lot of people, there are people who, you know, aren't necessarily want to like, who, you know, prefer to see their tax dollars go in and not help uh, adults who screwed their lives up or whatever you want to say. But children, I think we can all argue need a chance. I think we can all agree on that, right? So what a great thing to do, because look, we need more workers. We need educated people. We need America to be strong. How else do we do it? By feeding children. So, you know, I'm a hospitality guy. My job is to feed people. It's one of the reasons we didn't close down during COVID, not to feed our customers, though that was part of it, was to make sure our staff was fed. 
make sure our staff have made money because if I'm not feeding my staff and my teams, what am I doing? Can we take a bigger step back? If we're not feeding America, what are we doing? So unfortunately, you know, it was like, I think it was one in five right before the pandemic, we'd made some headway on um, one in five children were at risk of hunger. Unfortunately, now it's back down to one in four because, um, you know, the, the economy, because of COVID, because of all this stuff, unfortunately. But, it, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a life's work, right? We're not going to solve this right away. But it's just something that I think is really important. And, I, and, and I've never found anybody who's disagreed with me on that one. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I, I have heard of No Kid Hungry. Uh, here's yeah. a little baseball connection because on the Met Telecast, anytime a Met, New York Met hits a home run, they donate to No Kid Hungry. So I'm glad it yes. goes to this uh, Share Our Strength. I didn't know they were connected, but that, that's good that, to know that. Yeah, you know, Share Our Strength um, was in the beginning because there was a lot of restaurants were involved and we were kind of using our strength, uh, be it um, it was because be it, you know, uh, serving food to guests that would money. So it was, that was really well named and they've, they've slowly moved into No Kid Hungry because it's such a better like hashtag, right? Like just tells you, hey, what do they do? No Kid Hungry, pretty easy, right? I don't think it's cool. Feeding kids is cool. And I've yeah. got, uh, I got twin three-year-old girls, so. I'm feeding children all the time. (laughs) You know, when we were kids, because I think we're all around the same age, but when we were kids, it was always eat that. There were starving people and there were starving children in Europe. It was always, it was never, nobody ever said, you know, there were starving people, you know, in the next town or there were starving people, you know, it was always overseas. And I, I find it hard to believe that there weren't starving children and families here at the time. I don't know why that was, right? I Did you guys have that too? I, well, I had more than that. So I grew up as a federally assisted uh, from a, with a single mother. And so I was one of those kids who had that 10 cent lunch. And, mm-hmm. but I don't remember being hungry. I don't ever, I, you know, it wasn't as bad as, I was more fortunate than others. But, you know, my mother made popovers and served us tuna salad a lot. And popovers are very cheap. They're absolutely delicious. Just flour, egg, and milk. But, you know, she was smart enough to know how to make some stuff and provide for us. But it wasn't, you know, steaks and, you know, lobster by any means, you know. And uh, I remember having that, you know, funny money when we went to the store, right? I remember this. You know, that wasn't my whole life. My mother, um, you know, was a single mother and worked her way through college and, you know, things changed. You know, yeah, it's every town. It's everywhere. There, there is no town that doesn't have somebody hungry, you know? And what's really crazy and what's really sad is when you look at, um, especially you'll see winters in New England, you know, there are families that are choosing between heat and food. It's a, it's a, and they choose heat. So Andy, tell, tell our audience uh, if they, because listening to this, I would think that there are some people that will want to donate. How can they donate uh, to this? Yeah, uh, uh, strength.org as well as you know, nokidhungry.org. No kid just go there. And, and you know, and, and, and I would say, yeah, donate if you want. I, I, we would love that. But maybe volunteer. They do all sorts of things where they do great, the Great American Bake Sale where people cook, uh, make bake, baked goods and sell them. They have all different things. Sometimes uh, restaurants participate in different events where you go and you can round up or you can donate. There's all different events that happen. They've backed off a little bit on the events, um, obviously during COVID, but yeah, I think they'll be coming back and, you know, find a way to, I, I mean, I love the fact that people want to donate money and I think that's important, but it's also important to donate time and energy and sure. spread the word. You know, there's all those things. So, 
So when you're not uh, working with the charity, when you're not co- uh, opening up restaurants, you're writing cookbooks. Now you have six out there. Two of them, mm-hmm. you can tell they're from the Boston area. Wicked good barbecue, wicked good burgers. But you yes. also have, uh, you know, this one is called Pitmaster, correct? No, my newest one is uh, Backyard Barbecue. Pitmaster is is my best-selling book. So we'll just start with Wicked Good Barbecue. That's a goofy book. It's really hard recipes. Those That first chapter are the recipes of how we won the world championships. I don't advise anybody as a beginner to really use those recipes. They are hard recipes with really goofy ingredients. When you're doing competition barbecue, it's, it's like NASCAR. It's really complicated. But you can go, go for it if you want. The recipes are good. The sauces are amazing. Um, but Pitmaster is it's just, I mean, I, I love Pitmaster. It's so, so, such a great book. It's really about regionality of barbecue. We have all sorts of uh, guest uh, Pitmasters in there, like Bill Durney, like Sam Jones, uh, like Stephen Reichlin. Um, so different Pitmasters are in there. And they kind of give a, there's an essay from them or something that's kind of neat. So that is, uh, I really, I love that book. And then my most recent one, which is Backyard Barbecue, is really about kind of backyard barbecue gatherings uh, using the smoker, but more than just barbecue, which you have, we have all the kind of smoke shop recipes, but also there's a, a brunch chapter, right? With like biscuits and, um, you know, cured meats. There's a, um, you can do, uh, there's a, a fancy chapter with like a roasted prime rib. I mean, so really kind of fun, exciting, modern stuff that you can do on your barbecue. So I, I would suggest those last two books if, if anybody wants to get them. Sounds terrific. And I can get them on Amazon. Can they get them on your website? Which, by the way, is, is andyhusbands.com, which I would suggest everybody check it well, out. Andy, andyhusbands.com. If you want to buy it, go to uh, the smokeshopbarbecue.com. Um, on the smokeshopbarbecue.com, you can get gear. Uh, our sauces, our rubs, we sell them all. And if you want a signed book, that's how you would get it. You can buy it through Amazon, of course. I, I don't care where you buy it, just buy it. But if you want it signed, either you've got to buy it through my website or, or bring it in. If you, if you live in the area and you're coming in, bring the book and let me know. You can get me through the website. You can get me through any social media. And, um, you know, I'll gladly sign your book for you. That make, I'd be honored. Wow, that's service. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Can you imagine? I'm I'm coming to the restaurant. Well, I'll, I'm going to be 30 miles away, but but I'll be there to sign your book. <laughs> if I can, I will. That's very nice. That's great. <laughs> you know, I, I did notice I, now, for these type of books, I would imagine it's best to have a hard copy. I know some on, on Amazon, they, they sell a Kindle copy, but, you know, you really have to have the hard copy in your hands to, to read it and look at the pictures. And uh, I think it's best to have it that way. So go get the hard copy of the book. I would suggest everybody do that. I think you're right. I, I, I have a couple of cookbooks on the Kindle. It, it's not the same. You know, there's, there's yeah. something People about have different the, the views book. about books. I like to mark them up and dog ear them and yeah. put my paw, paw print in there and really use it. But I have another chef friend who is, he won't let me touch his books because he wants them pristine and, and, and perfect. And, and to me, I, I think they're to be used, you know, used and abused. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Andy, we, we really appreciate your time. I have a few more questions. You said you might, you teach classes. Is this online or is this a, a in-person type of class that you, that you uh, teach? Well, I did my share of Zooms during COVID and sure, I'm available to do classes. I don't like to teach barbecue or, uh, 
Um, I really can't teach barbecue in a Zoom. It's just right. not possible. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I do more technique and um, stuff like that for Zoom classes. But no, I do them in person. Uh, in the next, I would say, the next month, yeah, we'll be launching. We'll be announcing our uh, winter and spring schedule. Uh, I teach anywhere from one to two classes a month. They're usually about anywhere from 15 to 20 people. They sell out very quickly. And they're all about barbecue generally. I mean, as long as we include some, you know, so there might be like a all beef one. There might be an all rib one. There might be a seafood one. There might be, you know, just different. We do a grilling one. We just do different stuff. It's really cool. We do it at our assembly location where we have a back porch uh, or patio where I have all different types of smokers and grills and we kind of work together. I show them how to do things. So yeah, they're fun. And, 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 and there's a bourbon part that's in it. So we do a little bourbon class or tasting and then you get a full meal. They're really fun. Man, road trip. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. I'm already, I'm halfway in the car. You can see I'm like half out of the picture. Where are these classes given? I, I know in uh, Boston, but at our assembly location. So, um, assembly row is where it is and uh, plenty of parking and there's a hotel right there for you guys to stay in yeah they're usually on Saturdays the way to find out is either one follow us on Instagram uh, or two the best way and the, you'll get first notification is through our if you sign up on our website for our emailer and we don't kill you we send out one, one maybe two a month just to, to announce what we're doing uh, we do whiskey dinners and all sorts of things like that as well as we speak, I'm doing that right now. So <laughs> signing up on your website. So about that's, yeah, about social media. Tell us all your, your social media sites so people can get in touch with you. Uh, at Andy Husbands is is pretty much it. So you can get me through. I mean, I don't know if I can have more Facebook friends, but uh, you can get Instagram is where you find me most. Twitter, I'll be there now and then. Twitter's kind of a car wreck, so I stay away from that a little bit, but. <laughs> Every now and then, but Instagram where you find me most at Andy Husbands, but also at the Smoke Shop Barbecue, um, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and uh, you know we're pretty active. And if you, if anybody ever wants to reach out to me, I will get back to you pretty quickly. Excellent. There are so many social. As you're saying all those, I'm thinking there's TikTok and Clubhouse, and every day it seems like there's a new a new social media site or, or yes. then, then people saying, Oh, well, Facebook is, you know, that's for the older people. Now the kids don't mm -hmm. go on Facebook. And so, but I thought, and then before Facebook, there was something else. I can't remember what it was, but that went my, away. My space. My space. Yeah. My space. Right. Thank you. You know, it's, hey, oh. Andy, I have, I've been to Boston only a few times in my life. I know the area around Fenway park, but mm -hmm. which restaurant of you is closest to Fenway? Would, would that be assembly? Kendall Kenmore, Kenmore? Kenmore, I mean, no, Kendall Square, yeah, Kendall Square or uh, Seaport. Mm -hmm. uh, those, those are probably closest. I mean, in both of them are maybe a 15, 20 minute walk. So right. it's not too far if you were to walk it. And on a beautiful baseball day, it's, it's a nice walk, especially from Kendall because you walk over the Charles and it's, it's beautiful. Nice. Um, or you could take the tea, um, you know, just getting near Fenway uh, with a car is always difficult. Yes, it is. But, um, yeah. The, both those two right now, you know, we're, we're still looking around. We may maybe somewhere else. You never know. The T with the yellow line and the orange and the green and the blue and the red and right. I, I lived in uh, I lived in Boston for uh, for about a year years ago. Yeah. Well, after I, I, don't, 
I don't think you ever took a yellow line. That sounds like something. No, find the maybe snow. that's in find, Washington. But the maybe tea... you that, find that in the snow. Um, <laughs> but there are right there's the, and and some of them are above some of them. I mean, as, if you're driving in Boston, and there's the T like running next to you, or it, it's not the easiest city to drive in. I gotta say, no. Yeah, no, we did, we did no planning in, in Boston. It's really complicated sometimes, but if you live here, you get to know it. It's not so bad. Yeah, I did, and then I moved. So, <laughs> you know, just just as I was getting to know it, then I left. <laughs> so, but Andy, Andy thank you very thank, much. Thank you much for your time. Um, I really appreciate it, and, and we did learn a lot. I knew, uh, you know, had no idea that the mustard sauce from uh, in the Carolinas came from Germany. So, you know, that's something always you know good to know. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much you and we we wish you best of luck best of success and 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 thanks again for sh- coming on our show my pleasure thanks for having me anytime guys and we want to thank andy husbands for joining us on baseball and bbq if you're in the boston area please definitely go and see go into his restaurants and uh, check them out really good stuff it's his career has been quite the ride yes. would you say mm-hmm I mean, from his appearance, of course, on uh, the TV show with, of course, um, the guy who yells all the time. We just said it in the interview. Ramsey. Gordon Ramsey, of course. And now he's like the king of Boston. The king of Boston with his with his barbecue restaurants. Really nice guy. Thank you, Andy, for for being with us. And now we had on we had on Larry Olmstead, who wrote this book, Fans, which I mean, you're going to hear all about it in the interview. But the one thing is the interesting part of it is how we we came upon his book. And that was Stephen Reichlin. Yes. We right. We interviewed Stephen Reichlin, sent him a thank you. And then he recommended Larry. So you never know where your where your next interview is going to come from. But Mm. and, and I guess, Jeff. You might be going to Mets fantasy camp. You might be one of the ultimate fans. <laughs> Look, I only want one year. These some of these people go every year for twenty. Of course, years. of course. I'm just you happy know, to get my one year in. Yes, of course. <laughs> I, I, but that really is being the ultimate fan. Uh, you know, of a team. It's just is very nice. Goes with the book. And uh, so, why don't we get to Larry Olmstead and uh, hear all about his book, fans? Okay. Baseball and BBQs, happy to welcome to our show a New York Times bestselling author, a world traveler, writer of thousands of articles for the USA Today, Investors Business Daily, Forbes, Cigar Aficionado, and many others. He enjoys golf, skiing, wine, spirits, and food. He's with us tonight to talk to us about his latest book, Fans, how watching sports make us happier, healthier, and more understanding. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Larry Olmstead. Welcome, Larry. Welcome, Larry. So let me ask you, why, why write a book on, on fans? Actually, my last book before this was about food. So, uh, you know, I try to do something different every time, but I try to, my thing is to find, uh, you know, what I call sort of um, obvious topics that people don't think about. And everybody loves sports, but not a lot of attention is paid to fans. You know, um, there's thousands of books written about teams and players and coaches and even you know business strategy from sports, but almost no attention paid to fans who comprise the majority of, of the participants. Yeah. So, Larry, the, the way we found out about you is we had Stephen Reichlin on. 
we had a wonderful interview with Stephen, and we were interviewing him about his newest vegetable grilling book. Wrote him a, an email thanking him for the interview. And the next thing you know, he says, you know, would you be interested in speaking to Larry? Um, he wrote this book, Fans, and I think it would be right up your alley. He said, sure. So I guess the, the first thing that I'm curious about is, how is this relationship with uh, Stephen Reichlin come about? What What is the relationship there? So I have written extensively about all things barbecue for many years. And I used to write, among other things, a weekly column for USA Today called Great American Bites, which is all about road food joints across the U.S., a lot of which obviously are barbecue. And I've been to Stevens Barbecue University and met him, you know, there years ago when it was at the Broadmoor in Colorado. Uh, you know, now it's at Palmetto Bluff in South Carolina. But um, uh, and we just sort of became friendly around barbecue and writing and travel. And I ask him for restaurant tips sometimes when I go to Europe and vice versa. And uh, he's a good guy. And we relate about smoky meat. <laughs> <laughs> so then this actually our podcast, which I, I like to think is kind of unique because of the way we combine the two baseball and, and barbecue is actually perfect right up your alley. It's, it's definitely combined two two things that uh, seem to be a big part of your life because one of the things in the book, and it's more towards the end, you talk about going to Shea Stadium uh, with your dad. And, and what's interesting is, turns out your dad wasn't actually a baseball fan. I, you, can you tell us a little bit about that, that growing up with your father and him taking you to the games yet not being a baseball fan? Yeah. I mean, I didn't realize it at the time, but he would take my brother and I, uh, my sister is uh, 15 years older than me. So he would, uh, they actually went to uh, Dodgers games uh, in Brooklyn. But by the time uh, I came on the scene, uh, he was living in Queens and, and near, not far from Shea. And so he would take my brother and I to games and we would sit in the cheap seats and he taught me to score and, you know, in, in, by hand. But it wasn't until uh, he passed away a few years ago that I thought back on it and realized that I'd never seen him watch sports on TV. You know, never watched a football game, a baseball game, you know, he, and, and it occurred to me that we went to the game because it was a family time thing to do, not because he liked baseball. It could have been the zoo, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> You know, in, in the course of writing this book, I've talked to hundreds of fans around the world. And if there's one, well, if there's two common things fans believe, one is wait until next year. And uh, the other is this memory of, of going to games as a kid or watching games, even on TV with, with their parents. It's a multi-generational bonding thing that seems to be universal to all sports. Absolutely. I, I want to get into the, uh, the just uh, of the book. The uh, book is called Fans, How Watching Sports Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Understanding. And in the beginning of your book, I'm going to read from it. It says, longtime ESPN television producer Justine Gubar, an unlikely fan hated given her profession, described the American sports fan in these words. That beer-guzzling, jersey-wearing guy headed to the buddy's house to watch football all day. That doesn't sound very healthy to me. 
Uh, no, it, it, it isn't. But, uh, you know, fortunately, it's a stereotype. It is not the average uh, sports fan. One of the things that I did was I basically looked at every movie and sitcom that portrayed sports fans that I could find. And universally, you know, this is it. The overweight, it's always a big fat guy, always in a jersey with his buddies, kind of excluding his family. But, you know, the reality is the majority of Americans, about 52% of Americans identify themselves as sports fans. That's 200 million people in this country. It's not all overweight guys. It's lots of couples. It's just uh, slightly more men than women. And it's lots of people who, you know, I don't want to say normal because it's not abnormal to wear a jersey and be a sports fan. But, you know, it's it's a lot more than that stereotype. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, Larry, I really enjoyed the book. All right. Let's let's put that out there. I'm going to put my fandom out there. I am a fan, (laughs) (laughs) fan of yours now, a fan of this book. So there's there's so many interesting chapters here, one of them being the super superstitions of fans how what they they feel that what they do or how they what they eat the day of the game um, who sits with them where they sit all these things somehow have a control over whether their team wins the game which is fascinating and yet i've heard it before there, there are many times that that people feel like that and i there was one part that 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 was so funny because you um you said right here you said it, it's even with sex one one person said my wife has to call me roger clemens <laughs> during sex the night before clemens pitches and my mind and jeff will tell you i've got a warped mind immediately went to the fact that wow so this guy is having sex every fifth day that's pretty <laughs> But not in the winter. Right. <laughs> and and I can imagine the wife saying something like, geez, doesn't this guy ever get hurt? Doesn't he need Tommy John surgery? <laughs> well, I would say the uh, the superstitions is, is, is probably the one part of the book that doesn't really uh, support my thesis about, you know, fans being healthier and mental health. But it was just too funny to to leave out. You know, I asked one of the, the probably the top researcher, sports psychology researcher of fandom in the country, what the most interesting study he ever did was. And he's like, you got to see these superstitions. So that's kind of where that came from. And it is it is very entertaining. But, you know, it comes that belief that the fans can can, can uh, impact the game comes from what makes sports fandom so unique is that feeling that even when you're watching it on television at home, you're part of the crowd. You know, and I say, like, I'm a Star Wars fan, right? But I know when I'm sitting home alone on the couch watching a Star Wars movie that I'm watching a movie by myself. But when you watch a baseball game and there's 50,000 people in, you know, Mets jerseys waving banners and you're watching and they're in full view all the time, right? People think we're watching a sporting event, but we're watching a spectator event. And, you know, it, it, that's why fans feel connected to their group, you know, Red Sox Nation, whatever you want to call it, even when they're home watching TV. So and then that's the part that brings us, you know, so much sort of joy and mental health benefit and feeling of belonging uh, tribal instinct that's, you know, ba- basic to humanity. So, you know, it spins itself off in weird ways like the superstitions. But overall, it, it makes us really happy. 
Ah, well, let me, uh, I don't mean to take you to task, but <laughs> there's a quote. You did a lot of great research, and you have a quote from uh, Daniel L. Wan, a PhD from Murray State University. And he says, people's lives are enriched. There's very clear research showing that the more you identify with a local sports team, the better your social psych- psychological health is. This stuff matters to people. I'm a Mets fan. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how that makes me happy. <laughs> Uh, like I said, the main the main root of all this mental health. So the psychologists like Dr. Wan have identified about two dozen different mental health attributes, things like uh, higher self-esteem, lower rates of depression that sports fans enjoy more. And again, most of that comes from uh, this feeling of belonging to a group. Humans want to belong to a group. It's not uh, tied to the winning and losing, but that's probably like the question I get the most, especially if you're like a Mets fan. and you know, the reality is that it's we get more enjoyment or more high from the wins than we get low from the losses. And that's why if your team is most teams in most sports over the long haul are pretty average. If your lifetime, your team is 50 50, you still come out ahead because the 50 percent of the time they win gives you more joy than you lose the 50 percent time the losses. And I, I use the Mets as an example. Right, I'm a Mets fan. I remember 1986. I will remember it for the rest of my life. I don't remember 1989 or 1983. And and that's one of the things like the Cubs fans, they want to win another World Series. But if they don't, they're in a way satisfied. Their lifelong dream came true. And there's been a lot of studies of this, how the big win you remember, and you you know, you talk to people, Jets fans who happen to be alive the last time the Jets won something, they remember it, right? So, um, so that's really, you know, you can go, you can go a long time. I'm a Bills fan in the NFL. I'm finally starting to get back into 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 getting some reward for that. You talk uh, uh, in the book about how sports has, you know, changes things, changes society, and of course, Jackie Robinson is a big part of that and you have a chapter dedicated to that talking about uh, Jackie Robinson and how he wasn't the only one who contributed to the change in our country and and the whole you know how things changed but he was a major contributor to that and and you talk about a lot about that it's it's fascinating to to hear about that yeah, I mean, I think sports has sports and sports fans have consistently been ahead of the curve, uh, ahead of government and businesses and and other institutions that are part of our social fabric in terms of what I consider social progress, combating ra- systemic racism, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, and I. I kind of document this whole uh, long-term trend, but even just since the book came out, look at like uh, mental health awareness and the Olympics, right? That's a, a perfect example of, of sort of the next the next frontier and the next big thing. And mental health advocates have trying have been trying to increase mental health awareness for decades with really no success. But in two weeks after the Olympics, it was a, a much on a cover of Time magazine, right? And a much bigger topic than it has ever been and is continuing to gain momentum. So that's the kind of, you know, these are the kind of, of real issues that, you know, sports can help society tackle. Absolutely. And you have a, a chapter called Sports and Our Brains, two parts of part one. And this kind of resonated with me 
It says in here that uh, someone's 84-year-old father-in-law can recite lineups from the 1954 Cubs, but they don't have like, you know, they have good long-term memory, but, you know, they don't remember yesterday. I remember talking to my grandmother and, you know, she couldn't uh, remember a couple of days ago, but she remembered watching the New York Giants play. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, they know now that doing any kind of cognitive intense activity is good for your brain, like physical exercise as you get older. And, you know, for some people, it's doing Sudoku or crossword puzzles every day. And that's, you know, I'm not saying, you know, sports is not the magic bullet that replaces that stuff, but it's an alternative. And a lot more people, you know, are into following baseball than doing Sudoku. Either one is good for you. But, you know, and especially sports have become, if anything, more cerebral in our lifetime, you know, definitely going back to the whole money ball thing and saber metrics. And I mean, some of the stat, you know, when I grew up, it was like ERA. You uh, know, yeah. <laughs> right. I, I, I don't even understand some of the stats. Now. And it's not just baseball, you know, the, the formations and defenses, basketball, football have all gotten more complex. So it, it requires more intellectual participation to be a fan. Now you say it's more likely that someone will convert religions than change teams. That is quite <laughs> fascinating. Yes. Yeah. And that the psychologists say, basically, you know, we internalize our fandom to the point where the team literally becomes a part of us. And that's one of the reasons why sports is able to have these impacts like a Jackie Robinson, right? If you're a Brooklyn Dodgers fan and you're racist, you're suddenly confronted with a choice. Do I continue to be racist or do I abandon the Brooklyn Dodgers? And for a lot of the fans, it's easier to change their view on racism than it is to, to reject the team. And, you know, that's what leads to a lot of, of the social progress. One of the chapters that also resonated with me is you telling a story of a person named Kelly story and how sports helped her heal as she was going through cancer treatments. Could you talk, talk to us about Kelly's story? Yeah. And um, so Kelly's daughter was a student of mine. I was teaching creative writing at Dartmouth College to grad students, and she was helping me do some research for the book. And I said, you know, there, there are, I've read all these cases of people who use their passion for sports to either overcome illness or go through rehabilitation, you know, in ways to, to basically fight diseases, fight, you know, recover from surgery. So, but, you know, I want to actually talk to someone you know, in this situation, can you help me find someone? And she's like, oh yeah, you should talk to my mom. You know, and that's, that's like how, how commonplace this is. Cause then, you know, so Kelly's story had a, a, a kind of rare form of bone cancer. She had to have a bone, her, her femur removed from her leg and replaced with a bone from a cadaver. She was a Broncos fan. Didn't know if she would ever get to see them go to the Super Bowl while she was having the surgery was when John Elway took the Broncos to the, the Super Bowl for the first time. And she would, you know, do her rehab sessions on a treadmill with a with a giant cardboard cutout of John Elway in front of her, made her goal to like go back to the games for the playoffs. And there's so many people like that. You know, I kept finding more and more examples. And it was, you know, it was good because I got to actually talk to her and get a lot of the detail. But, you know, she's hardly the only one. And uh, there's, you know, even, you know, the Broncos had, had had so many, just the Broncos among their fans had so many women go through cancer that, you know, they have like a fan club just for that. And that's just one team. So, uh, you know, it, it's pretty amazing. And then her, you, know, you mentioned her daughter now is a Broncos fan and takes 
her daughter to games and makes it a trip out of it. It's it's really quite fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and it, it's interesting because I got to meet a lot of fans from different parts of the country. So people always ask me, like, oh, which which city has the most intense fans or, you know, and it's different because they express themselves in different ways. But one thing that, you know, fascinates me is, is Denver is a city, you know, that has every professional sport. But more than any place I've ever been, it's like Broncos number one. And, every, you know, you could be a Broncos fan and a Rockies fan, but you're going to be always a Broncos fan at heart, you know, and and, right. and it's and they draw from such a big area. People drive hours and hours to go to games in Denver. Right. Yeah. It's like, uh, I guess, in Texas, where football is, uh, especially high school football is very big down there. Everything else is second. The one thing that I saw in the book was that sports lagged behind the LGBTQ with that, that they, it was more that you said that fans would have been more accommodating of athletes that came out, but they seemed to uh, lag behind in being able to come out and be their true selves because they felt that they wouldn't fit in sports and that was the one area that it was kind of sports was kind of behind the times yeah you're absolutely right i mean it certainly wasn't the fans who were lagging because you know again and again when the the first people who came out said they were surprised by you know all the positive support they got from the fans but it was you know part in a lot of cases of being the team environment in the locker room of feeling like they would be rocking the boat but you know again like i I said with mental health just since my, my book has come out there's been several more you know, hockey play different, you know, in, in every sport, it seems we keep hearing like the first active player now. So it's, it's, it's something that's progressing more quickly. This is the, the funny thing. This must have been some long day of skiing because <laughs> I mean, I, I hope everybody's going to get this book, but the way it's written is that Larry is spending the day skiing with Dr. Christie. Is it? Yeah. it and this is the basically one day, uh, although the next morning as well, but yeah. mostly one day skiing with Dr. Christie. And it, it's just funny that that's kind of, you know, it's just an aside, but it's funny that it's one day. Yeah, well, I had, you know, I was well into researching the book. I knew what the book was about. You know, I had a a lot of it sort of sketched out, but I didn't really have like an overarching structure and I was, you know, out skiing and she asked me, oh, what are you working on? And I said, oh, let's book about sports fans. And she's definitely not a sports fan. And she's like, why? You know, almost like, you know, very in a kind of condescending way. And it really took me because it, you know, I talked to so many sports fans, but I hadn't talked to many non-sports fans. And it really made me realize, you know, what the perception that, that again, couch potato stereotype, it's a waste of time kind of attitude. And I thought, you know, you get because anytime you you are passionate about a topic, you get too wrapped up in it. It's hard to see what you know, see it from an outside perspective, and that really showed me. You know, I wanted to be able to reach people like her, so it was great that you know we had this conversation, and I was able to kind of learn what the the negative perceptions would be. Larry, this book kind of reminds me a, a little bit in the we had on uh, maybe you you've heard of this book uh, Joan Ryan who wrote a book called Intangibles and it was all about team chemistry and she went about trying to prove the the myth that their team chemistry really does exist and 
a lot of what you a lot of what you have in this book is studies, surveys, research on things that you know being a, a fan ways that it's beneficial and you went about going uh, you went about trying to prove how it is beneficial and and I after after reading this as a fan of the Mets <laughs> I, I'm thinking that I must have added like 100 IQ points to my to for me <laughs> Yeah well I think you know one of one of the really interesting things is to me is is that I looked at it is is how does sports fandom affect us in a way that other kinds of fandom don't. You know, one of my editors said, you know, well, I'm a Harry Potter fan. Don't I get, you know, the same kind of enjoyment? And one of the big differences with sports and every other form of entertainment is its inherent unpredictability that you don't know what's going to, you know, I know James Bond is going to save the world, right? I don't have to go to the movie. I, I like the movies, but, you know, you, I know that the, the force is going to win over the dark side, right? But in, in sports, you don't. And, and maybe that speaks to that intangible uh, topic when you have things like the USA hockey team over Russia, you know, when they're clearly like outmanned and outgunned, but yet sometimes still win. And that's really why I think it's just the Cinderella moments that people love in, in sports. Absolutely. You never know who's going to win the game. That's why they play the game. Yeah. <laughs> Larry, look at Jeff's book. Look at now. This is a podcast. So people <laughs> don't see this, but can you can I mean, he you could see he read it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's more than I have in mind. <laughs> the, uh, the book is called Fans, How Watching Sports Makes Us Happier, Healthier and More Understanding. And with that, uh, there's a chapter in here called Post-Traumatic Recovery, How Sports Heals Communities. And we're recording this after the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And this chapter is really, I mean, it hit home. And you talk about not only 9-11, but also the tragedy in, in Vegas mm -hmm. and other tra tragedies around the world, the hurricanes, and how sports teams and, and sports help bring people together. Could you please talk about this chapter? Because it's one of the more poignant ones in the book. Yeah, this is my, my personal favorite part of the book. And again, having having gone, grown up going to Shea, and I actually worked in the World Trade Center at one point. So, you know, I remember that Mets-Braves game. You know, I wasn't there, but I watched on TV, like everyone in America. Right. And, you know, I remember it. And I thought at the time, and, you know, I thought for years afterwards that it was, you know, an anomaly, you know, because it was such a big moment. But then when I researched this book, you know, I found out that it's really not. Sports does this over and over again. Just, you know, not as big, you know, headline getter as 9-11, but even, you know, the Boston Red Marathon bombing, which right. was you know, after that, and um, natural disasters, Hurricane Katrina, and not just in the U.S., typhoons in Asia. I talked to uh, these sports psychologists who spent years studying the effect of sports and sports fandom on communities affected by trauma, whether man-made or uh, natural uh, and there's more, you know, natural disasters are far more dangerous, you know, earthquakes, wildfires all over the world all the time. And it's really amazing how, you know, I talked to, to people from that, you know, game at 9-11. They said, oh, it was, it was the moment when it was OK to smile again. And you hear a lot about that. And, 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 and it's because 
what we love about sports is, is part of the normal fabric of our lives. And we look forward to the return to normalcy once something goes off the rails. So, and, and usually if there is, is some big trauma, a terrorist attack, a shooting, a, a, right now a pandemic, first what happens is everyone sort of shelters and stays home and locks down. And then you want to go back out and be part of society. And there's no churches or mosques or synagogues in our country that are nearly as big as our sports arenas, right? They're the biggest public gathering places we have. So, you know, I think about it now with the pandemic, it's like when I, when, if I, when I can go to city field and high five a stranger without a mask on and cheer, that's when life will be normal again. And that's what we crave after any of these events. And, and I was, just because of the timing of the book with the, with the one October shooting in, in Las Vegas, I was actually able to go out there and interview people who had been shot, who had been shot at, as well as uh, executives of the Knights and the mayor. And it was amazing. Everybody I talked to cab drivers, bartenders didn't matter over and over again, you know, we, we, the Knights saved Las Vegas, you know, the, in, in a way that, that's kind of the aha moment. I came home from that trip and said, you know, if you tell, if you're a non-fan and you tell me that like sports is irrelevant, then you're missing the boat because it's not, I talked to these people. It's not irrelevant to them. Right. Yeah. And the story about the Knights, they really brought Vegas together. I mean, it was, it, for people don't know, it was their first season in the NHL and it happened after the shooting and they retired a number that, uh, I think the number what fifty eight, I believe it was, in, in honor of the people who were who were shot and killed. Yeah, fifty eight, and they went on this min- miraculous run, and, and it brought re- really Las Vegas back 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 to normal. Yeah, and and Las Vegas at the time is the largest city in the United States without a professional team in any of the four major sports. Right. So like, you know, them getting a hockey team was a bigger deal than any other city getting a hockey team. And now obviously they have a football team, but also, you know, they're an expansion team and expansion teams. You know, you look at the Mets (laughs) right, are notoriously bad and they are the most successful expansion team in the history of any sport. You know, they lost the Stanley Cup. But, you know, sort of similar to the Yankees losing the World Series after 9-11, nobody really even remembers that because it was so dramatic just that they got there. You had the, the, the tragedy in Vegas. And then, of course, the Knights, they had a great season. And, and everyone got behind them and it was fantastic. And they, you know, everybody, they're, they're winning. And if they didn't win, it would have been a whole nother scenario. Is it they... It wasn't just that the team was playing. They needed them to win like that. Otherwise, it would have been one of those, you know, negative talking and whatever. So, right. The team had to win. It wasn't just that the team was there and played. They had to win. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Uh, you know, we, I, we, we don't know what exactly would have happened if they had lost, but I think you're right. And it's very similar to, you know, I talked to this uh, history professor for the book who talked about George Bush throwing out the, the first pitch at that Yankees game after 9-11 in the World Series and him saying how, like, it had to be a strike or we would have this feeling that, like, America can't do anything right. And that's a lot to hang on a moment like that. But, you know, if it works out, which it did, then in retrospect, it works great. Now, this book, which I told you, again, it, it 
It's called Fans, How Watching Sports Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Understanding. I would think that anybody who finds a podcast like ours, which half of it is all about sports, you know, baseball, of course, is a sports fan, and this book would definitely appeal to them. But who do you think is the who do you really are, are targeting with this book? Who who are you what's what's your big target audience with this? Well, it's really twofold. It is sports fans. And I did envision that in a lot of cases, it would probably be a gift given to sports fans, you know, rather than fans buying. I mean, I'm all for them buying it for themselves, but it's just sort of a per everyone knows a sports fan. Right. So it's a, a very easy thing to give. But in you know, sports fans suffer from the stereotypes we talked about. And I wanted them to be able to like, you know, read this, look at the mirror and be like, hey, I'm not just happy. I'm a sports fan. I'm proud to be a sports fan. And I've got the ammunition for that. But I did also want to, at the same time, convince the Dr. Christie's and the non-fans of the world, because I, I firmly believe, and I think there's ample evidence in the book, that sports fans have made the world a better place, a society, a better place to live in in terms of things like racism and a lot of these other issues and post-traumatic healing, all these things. And whether you're a fan or not, you benefit. So I think, you know, you, you kind of owe it to sports fans to understand why. Absolutely. And, and what I'm going to ask you on, about six-year-old Will Cohn and the Iowa wave, could you tell what people what, what that is? Because this was very moving, moving story in the book. Yeah, so uh, the uh, the Children's Hospital at Iowa um, built a new uh, wing, and um, they built it, designed it so that it overlooks the uh, Iowa college football field or stadium, and uh, they kind of gave the kids' ward a sports theme. Their little cafe is called the Press Box, and it's sort of done up to look, you know, like, you know, a sports-watching venue, and you know, originally the idea was just the kids could look out the window and, you know, see what was going on. But then uh, some woman who was an Iowa fan said on like the fan Facebook page that, you know what, we should all stand like a sort of a version of the wave that they should all stand up and literally wave to the kids up at the window watching from the hospital at some point in the game. And they did this once, you know, somewhat spontaneously and it just caught on and videos of it went viral. And now it's something that's done at every game and the kids love it. And a lot of them are in there for long term. So they, you know, they, they see it week after week and they look forward to it. But also to, to me, what was, you know, is really telling is that the visiting fans, the opponents, so to speak, you know, participate just as, as vigorously in it. And it's one of those things where, you know, there's a lot of times, you know, Red Sox fans say, I hate the Yankees and things like that, but we don't really hate, you know, fans of other teams. It's it's a way of, of talking about our rivalry. And I spent a lot of time on the road uh, talking to fans and it's always like a friendly argument. And to me that, that, that wave solidifies that concept that, you know, we can all get together beyond what's going on in the field for betterment. I have uh, just w one more question and, and we thank you for, very much for, for your time. Definitely a, a great book. Very interesting. Well-researched. Well I want to ask you about American Ninja Warrior. <laughs> <laughs> Season just ended. So, <laughs> yeah. So I, I uh, 
I don't even know how I started, you know, watching it maybe five years ago, turned it on. There was nothing on. It was on. And I kind of fell in love with the show. And at the time, this was before I was working on the book. But what really appealed to me is, you know, A, that it's it's an extreme level of athleticism. It's like watching the Olympics. You know, I don't watch the Olympics when they're not on. But when I do, I can appreciate what the gymnasts and the divers are doing. It's like that. It's just a level of athleticism that's almost like beyond my human comprehension. But also the fact that, especially early on in the show, there was no prize money and no endorsements. And these people were, you know, training and they're basically professional athletes, but not being paid. And and I love that, you know, that they're passionate enough to basically quit their day jobs and become ninja trainees with no real reward down the road. Uh, And even now that it's become much bigger, there's very still very limited, you know, only one person wins money every season out of, you know, hundreds. <laughs> but in terms of the book, what really caught me was there's this thing called the participation effect, which is the idea that watching sports can make us become more active. And there's a, a bunch of the Olympics is a good example. Lance Armstrong's impact on cycling in the U.S. is an example. But the American Ninja Warrior to me is a very clear example because there are hundreds of these ninja training gyms across the country that kids and adults go to and work out. And none of them existed before. There was no such thing as ninja training. So here you have a very clear example of a sport became popular on TV and it begat an entire exercise movement and exercise is good for society. You know, we have a sedentary, overweight society. If you're going to eat that barbecue, you got to go to the ninja gym. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Barry, thank you very much for your time. Where, besides Amazon, where can people find the book? And if you have a website uh, that you sell it, uh, please let us know. Yeah, I don't have a website that I sell it, but I do have a website called Sports Fans Book. Uh, that has a lot of reviews and links to related articles and just information on the topic. They can preview a chapter and, and learn, you know, learn a little more about the book before they decide to buy it. But it's for sale, you know, bookstores, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, anywhere books are sale, audiobooks, Kindle edition. You know, you can digest it any way you enjoy. I listen to the audiobook myself in the car on a long drive because it's weird to have someone else reading in your voice. Um, <laughs> but it was pretty well done. Great. It, you know, Larry, it's interesting with the book because uh, I was just thinking of who I want to get the book for. And that it's it's actually the perfect size for a stocking stuffer because it's actually I don't know if this well I'm sure it's intentional. The book is like uh, Jeff I don't know how to describe it. It's um it it's smaller. I mean there's not less pages, but it's it's not your typical you know big book. I mean it's like a it's almost like it could fit in your in one exactly. hand. handheld book. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's like a it's like five by seven, which is a smaller than normal format for hardcover, though it is still 300, you know, whatever pages. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's nobody's getting cheated. That's for darn yeah, the idea is um, <laughs> that it's a book that also sells in what's called the gift market, you know, which is like a stationary store that might have like one stand of books. Uh, kind of checkout thing. And they, you know, I don't understand the publishing industry that well, but they prefer the smaller format. That's why it's done that way. But I have had a lot of people say they love traveling with it because you can put it in like your blazer pocket. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's nice. It's compact. It, it, it's seriously, I know. Well, I mean, the holidays are not that far off and this is a perfect stocking stuffer. It really is for the, for the fan. (laughs) 
in your life. <laughs> Get them this book. It's, right. And you also a have a, a couple other books, uh, one called Real Food, Fake Food, and another said called Getting Into Guinness, One Man's Largest, Longest, Fastest, Highest Journey Inside the World's Most Famous Record Book. That sounds interesting as well. Yeah, the food book was was a New York Times bestseller. That was sort of my big book, you know, very educational. And the Guinness book I loved did not do very well commercially. But again, you know, a topic that everybody knows what the Guinness Book of World Records is. Nobody knows anything about it. Really rich history. So thank you again for joining us, Larry. This was a fascinating and the book is fascinating. I encourage everybody to go get it. And we appreciate you coming on Baseball and BBQ. Yeah, my pleasure. I can't wait till it comes out. And thank you, Larry, for joining us. That was a very, you know, I, I suggest everybody pick up this book. It's very, very interesting. And it makes a great gift. It didn't, it's the size of the book. It is really kind of a, uh, what do you call it? Stocking stuffer? Stocking stuffer. Yeah. Yeah. Stocking it's, stuffer. It's a perfect book for any sports fan. And it's just not about baseball. It's about the science of, of sports and how, how the fandom of how you become a fan and, and, and what, what it takes to be a fan and how it really helps people. Of course, the thing about sports, uh, of course, when New York Mets fans, so I don't know how it helps us. <laughs> well, that was you. Address, he addressed that in the in it. And and he is right. You know, the the 86. I, the thing, though, is the 86 team, obviously, is, is a team everyone remembers. And and I might not remember a specific season that they were bad. I, I kind of group it together. Like I, I kind of group the the nineties or the you know parts yeah. of the eighties or yeah you know you you group the years together. I don't think you specifically say you know in this year they lost a hundred and something games and but kind of you kind of think of it as a cluster like they were just bad. Yes, but they'll get good again. They'll get eventually when you would when you were down there, Jeff. Any scouts? Did you get you know anyone interested in that third base play of yours? <laughs> No, no, no scouts are down there. But I tell you, it, it it is at the base at their at their spring training facility, and like spring training, people go there. And there were actually fans out there. They knew about this, and they brought memorabilia for people for the players to sign. And they weren't campers or anything. They were just in the in the area. So just people that came by. Yeah, I've I've been to that. That's Port St. Lucie. I That's have Port been Lucie, to the Mets yeah. spring training complex there, and it's beautiful. Yeah, the, the big fields. There's you guys were probably spread out on different fields doing your training and everything. And yeah, I mean, you, did you sprint and all that? You did all that. Uh, <laughs> I did my share, fair share of sprinting, but no hamstring pulls. I was one of the lucky ones. Yeah, <laughs> that that I would imagine is because you know these people they they don't do anything for a while and then you go out there and the next thing you know it's full out. Yeah. At least you trained. Yeah, you were smart. I, I was one of the lucky ones. I mean, yeah, I, I, I did not get hurt at all. So I was happy. Good. Uh, well, if you want to reach the show, let me let me give you the phone number. It's 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Join our Facebook page, Baseball and BBQ. The Twitter, tweet us, baseball at Baseball and BBQ. Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. And our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. Dot com and Len, we want people to rate and review us, right? Absolutely. And Jeff, the other thing I want to say is coming up, uh, what is it, December 5th, is going to be the um, vote on Gil Hodges. Among others. Right. Among others, of course. But uh, we dedicated two episodes 
to arguments, reasoning, reasoning why Gil Hodges should be in the Hall of Fame. But you know what, Jeff, whether they this small group of voters, OK, 16 might put them in what 16, 16 voters. OK, maybe they put them in. Maybe they don't. But after but the, the guy's a Hall of Famer, no matter what the 16. Yes. People think so. Yeah. I suggest to people on your social media, tweet out or, or Facebook, whatever it is the Baseball Hall of Fame with the hashtag induct Hodges, because, uh, you know, we w- really want to get him in. And there's a couple of committees meeting that day as well. Yeah. There's one ballot that has uh, a bunch of uh, players from the uh, the Negro Baseball Leagues. I believe that's called the Early Days Committee. Right. Uh, I, might, I might not have that uh, all correct, but uh, the early, early baseball days, which... Disappointingly, Doc Adams is not on this list, not one of the nominees, which is very, very surprising. Yeah, that was, I have to say, that was a disappointment Yes, to, to have that. He misses uh, by two votes last time. Then they discover the, his rules of baseball, and they only put him in the, uh, in the nomination this time. Yeah, and, and you know what, Jeff? One other thing on that. You, I've, I've always said this. You and I agree on this. That when these ballots for the Hall of Fame are out, and I'm talking about the players that have been retired five years and every year, you know, if they get the certain amount of votes, they stay on the ballot. Right. And you you'll see these ballots. And one year, this person checked them off that they were a Hall of Famer. And the next year they didn't check them off. How does someone go from being a, a Hall of Famer to not a Hall of Famer? Same thing with Doc Adams. How how is it that Doc Adams is misses barely misses getting in the Hall of Fame. They find the rules that he wrote. I mean, they, they have clear documentation. Yes. He and said, he's not even on the ballot. 90 feet. He said that. Right. The shortstop position. He said that. Yes. And, and there is definitive proof. Yes. And now he's not even on the ballot. Go figure. Jeff, we could talk all about that. We could talk about our guests. We could, but we we have to say goodbye at some point. So is this where we say goodbye? Goodbye. See you next time. Baseball always brings you home. From the poet, Shel Krakowski, the musician, Dave Dresser. Hope you guys have a great week.